Fish. For the vast majority of my life, I have lived less than a 10-minute walk from the Atlantic Ocean. I can literally look out the window of my office and see it right there. That great big blue expanse teeming with more life than I can imagine. Despite the abundance and proximity of the ocean, it was more common to see pork chops or ground beef on the dinner table than fish. When we did eat fish, it was limited to salmon or haddock most of the time, sometimes tuna. My family is not unique in our limited exposure to fish. Even in restaurants in Nova Scotia, it is much easier to sell salmon or haddock than any other type of fish. Halibut would be up there too, and with cod becoming more and more available, that is also being sold more. But nothing sells better than salmon and haddock. The truth is, I know more people who grew up on the ocean who don't like fish than ones that do. How is that possible? Why, when the ocean is right there, do we limit ourselves to such a narrow selection? And how is it possible that so many people don't even like fish? I'm sure that there is a complex socioeconomic explanation that can be traced back generations. But there is also a simple answer. Whenever I ask someone why they don't like fish, the answer is almost always the same. Their mother always overcooked it and it turned, out, it turned them off it forever. I'm serious. That's the answer I get time and time again. As to why we limit ourselves mostly to salmon and haddock, I honestly don't know. It could be familiarity. It's all we know. It could be the price. I remember my mother buying whole salmon for 4 or $5. It could be availability. Our grocery stores aren't exactly stocked to the gills with varieties of fish. Who knows? Whatever the reason, the only solution is knowledge. When you know how to better cook fish, you are more likely to eat it. And when you know what you are looking for, you are more likely to buy and when you are confident in your ability to buy and cook a familiar fish, you're more likely to branch out and try something new. Buying fish. Today, it is most common to buy fish in pieces. It could be whole fillets or individual portions. It could be fresh or frozen. No matter how you buy it, there are some things to keep in mind. Where to buy fish. First of all, I highly suggest that if you have access to a store or market that specializes in selling fish, that you buy it there rather than at the supermarket. In all honesty, where I'm from, it is really common to buy fish right from the fishermen from the back of their truck in a hardware store parking lot. It doesn't get much fresher than that. Now, I've found that anytime I had, I've had problems with the freshness or quality of fish that has come from the grocery store. Having said that, there is a convenience element to buying your fish where you buy all your other groceries. I get it and I still do it too. Buying pieces of fresh fish. When buying pieces of fresh fish, there are three main things to look for. The smell, the color, and the texture. Fresh fish doesn't smell bad. It doesn't really smell like much at all. Maybe mildly like the ocean, but that's it. If it smells, don't buy it. The color should be bright and crisp. Salmon, trout, and Arctic char should be bright pink or red. White fish should be white, not gray. Finally, the fish should not be slimy except for Arctic char. It still has its skin on it. It is perfectly normal for the char skin to be slimy. It is perfectly acceptable for you to step up to the fish counter, point to a piece of fish, and ask to take a closer look. They likely won't let you hold it, but you should be able to get close enough to tell if it smells or to see if it looks odd in any way. Now, honestly, with COVID and everything, I don't know if that's still the case. I wrote this before that, but I don't, I don't see why not. Also, when buying fresh fish, it is always best to eat it that day or at the least latest the next day. You don't want it sitting around for longer than that. And always ask if it has been previously frozen or not. If it has been, its shelf life is limited and you really shouldn't freeze it again. I hope this goes without saying, but when buying fish, stay away from the discount bin. 
It isn't worth the few dollars you're going to save. Buying pieces of frozen fish. Modern fishing trawlers are very advanced. It is not uncommon for fish these days to be processed and flash frozen right on board the trawler within hours of it being hauled in. So buying frozen fish isn't too much of a worry with a few exceptions. I always look for where the fish is from. I typically stay away from farm fish uh, from Asia like tilapia as their health standards and regulations are a lot different than ours. I also generally don't buy fish that was frozen in store. You know it when you see it. It's packaged on those blue styrofoam boards. There's typically fish that was nearing the end of its life in the fresh display and so got frozen and sold another day. Just going back to like tilapia and talking about fish from Asia, there's a lot of stuff online you can find about, um, you know, kind of tilapia farms and stuff like that that would really disgust you. So just know where your fish is coming from and kind of do a little research for you to start buying whatever you see. Buying whole fish. When buying whole fish, the same principles apply as with pieces of fish. It shouldn't smell and it shouldn't look slimy. You always want to look at the eyes of the fish. They should not be cloudy. The clearer they are, the fresher the fish. I would also typically ask the fishmonger to scale the fish if it isn't already done, as you don't want to do that. You can even ask them to flay it if you'd like. I will ask the grocery stores, the person, I, I will say that in grocery stores, the person working behind the fish counter often knows less about fish than you do to go to a fishmonger. I've, I've had many conversations with people working the fish counter at the grocery store who knew nothing about fish, literally nothing. Wild fish versus farmed fish. There's a lot to talk about farmed fish these days, and so I thought it was important to talk about it a little. Fish farming is a very old practice. It dates back at least as far as ancient Rome. It was common for the wealthy to have tilapia ponds so they could always have fresh fish. Today, fish farming is becoming increasingly more important. Our de demand for fish continues to grow, and we're fishing the ocean dry. Before too long, it's likely that farm fish will be more common than wild caught. It's an inevitability. Having said that, there have been issues with farm fish, but the technology is improving, and it's becoming more friendly to the environment and the fish. I would suggest doing a little research on the topic. Cooking fish. The key to cooking fish is to not overcook it. I know, I know that is the most obvious statement in the world, but it's true. Fish is not chicken. It doesn't need to have the crap cooked out of it to be safe. For the record, neither does chicken. When fish is cooked properly, it should be tender and moist. It should not leave your mouth feeling dry. Let's take a look at some common fish and how to cook them. Cooking haddock fillets. Let's say you want to bake some haddock. You lay it on a baking sheet and season it with a little lemon, salt, and pepper, and some fresh herbs. Sounds delicious. Turn the oven on to 40 degrees Fahrenheit. How long does it take to cook that fish? 45 minutes? 30 minutes? No. Probably 10 to 12 minutes, depending on the size of the fillets. Really big fillets may take 15 to 18 minutes, but those are really big ones. Haddock should easily flake when cooked, but not fall apart. It should be firm to the touch, but not springy. It shouldn't feel rubbery. When you do cut into it, the flakes should look shiny, not translucent, that's undercooked. Not dry, that's overcooked. Cooking salmon fillets. The exact same principles of cooking haddock apply to cooking salmon, whether it is portions or whole fillets. There are only really two differences. A salmon fillet, so half of half a salmon, will take longer to cook than haddock, likely 20 to 25 minutes. A portion of salmon will take about 10 to 12 minutes, less if you sear it in a pan first. 
just like with the haddock, salmon should easily flake away, uh, easily flake but not fall apart. It should be firm but not springy. When you cut into it, it should look shiny, not dull. It shouldn't look dry, and it shouldn't look translucent. But a little bit of translucent in the middle is fine. And honestly, you can get salmon sashimi. You can get raw salmon on rice as sushi. So if your salmon's a little undercooked, it's not going to hurt you. Basic principles for cooking fish. These basic principles for cooking fish are pretty much universal. There are, of course, exceptions like with tuna. You want a tuna steak to be rare in the middle. Honestly, if your salmon or haddock is slightly undercooked, it isn't going to hurt you. You've probably had salmon sushi before, like I just said. The key is really, really just don't overcook it. Cooking times are based on the thickness of the fish, just like with anything else. But what can I say? What I can say is that typically the cooking time is much less than you think it is. It's okay to check the fish and then keep cooking if it isn't ready yet. So aim to undercook it a little and then pop it back in if you need to. Cooking fish in a pan. The key to cooking fish in a pan is to start with a hot pan. Don't overcrowd it. Use a bit of oil and butter. And again, don't overcook it. Fish that you cook in a pan is generally going to be thin fillets, which cook quickly, typically three to five minutes per side, or maybe even less. Obviously, the thicker the fish, the longer it will need to cook. Start with the presentation side down. That's just the nice side of the fish, generally the side that didn't have the skin on it. Put it down, leave it alone for three to four minutes, flip it, leave it alone again. Only flip it one time. Check it for doneness. Again, firm but not springy. Either take it out of the pan or keep cooking it. For frying fish, it still has the skin on. You want to get the pan nice and hot, and I mean really hot. Add some oil and butter and place the fish skin side up. Only cook it for about two minutes or so. Flip it and cook it the rest of the way. You want to cook it 60 to 70% of the way through the skin side down, and this will give you a nice crisp skin as long as the pan stays hot. And if you go to chefsnotes.com slash basic-things-everyone-should-be-able-to-cook-pt2 forward slash, you can find a, a, a recipe for white wine poached cod and parsley potatoes and Thai red curry salmon and fish fingers with sweet chili sauce. And again, I'll share that link in the description of the video. Pasta. In North America, for whatever reason, we have a tendency to overcomplicate pasta. We take what should be a straightforward and simple dish and add about 20 ingredients, which are about 15 too many. If you look at any authentic Italian pasta recipe, you will immediately notice how short the recipe is. They use a handful of high-quality ingredients and do very little to them. I implore you to approach pasta in the same way as much as possible. Of course, you can still make your mother's 20-ingredient tomato sauce, but understand that there is another way. When we add too many ingredients into a sauce, or anything for that matter, we lose the nuance of the flavors. Everything becomes muddled together and not very exciting to eat. If, on the other hand, we do as the Italians do and limit what we put the, uh, into the sauce, the flavors can stand for themselves and create a beautiful symphony. As this is a beginner cooking course, we aren't going to get into making pasta from scratch, though it isn't nearly as complicated as you may think. However, we will look at matching shapes of dried pasta to types of sauce and why that's important. But first, let's look at some different kinds of sauces. Pasta sauces. When we think of pasta sauce, we generally think of either red sauce or white sauce, so tomato-based or bechamel or cream sauce. Though these are obviously very popular, they are not the only options. If you get stuck making only these two types of pasta sauce, you're seriously missing out. Now let's take a look at these two first, and then we'll move on to some of the other more interesting ones. 
tomato-based pasta sauce. So there are a few things in the world of gastronomy that are as perfect as a classic tomato sauce. Tomatoes, onion, olive oil, salt, pepper, sugar, and basil combine to make something so simple, so unassuming, and so delicious that it boggles the mind. To this simple sauce, meat such as brown beef, ground beef, or seared chunks of pork can be added along with some wine and herbs, and what was once a basic tomato sauce becomes something that is truly magical. Making tomato sauce. Start by dicing an onion. Heat a generous amount of olive oil in a medium pot and add the onion to it. You don't want the heat to be too high. A medium temperature will be fine. The idea here is that you want to cook the onions until they're slightly caramelized. It's only going to take about 10 minutes, and you'll have to stir them every few minutes or so. While the onions are cooking, open a can of whole tomatoes. If you can get San Marzano tomatoes, which are imported from Italy, that would be best. And yes, it actually does make a difference. Open the can, pour the tomatoes into a bowl, and crush them with your hand. You don't need to completely puree them, but you don't want big chunks either. Once the onions are slightly caramelized, add the tomatoes and a bit of salt and pepper. Heat the tomatoes, give the sauce a taste, and adjust the seasoning with salt and pepper and sugar as needed. You don't want the sauce to be sweet. That's not what the sugar is for. The sugar is there to take some of the acidity out of the tomatoes. The more you caramelize the onions, the less sugar you may need. Also, the tartness, the tartness of the tomatoes depends on what time of year they were harvested. If it was a sunny that day, how much water they had. So don't just blindly add sugar. Taste then add only as needed because just because it's the same type the same brand of tomatoes that you used last time doesn't mean they're going to taste exactly the same after the sauce is seasoned simmer it for 10 minutes and then take it off the heat chop up one to two tablespoons of fresh basil and add it into the sauce from here you can puree the sauce or just leave it as it is this sauce is great to have with a stuffed pasta like ravioli or tortellini it's great to use in the layers of a lasagna it's fantastic in seafood linguine with a bit of white wine and chili or it's, just, or it's great just on its own over spaghetti with Parmesan. There's so much you can do with such a simple sauce that you need to master this one ASAP. Cream-based pasta. Most commonly cream-based pasta is made with a bechamel, which is a white sauce made from milk, sometimes cream, and thickened with a roux, which is, again, equal parts flour and butter. Don't let the fancy name fool you. It is not nearly as intimidating as it seems. It's more than likely that you've made a bechamel before and didn't know it. Uh, and in the written post, I've shared a recipe. And again, uh, you can find the link in the description of this video. Um, and there's just a few notes about bechamel here, which I will get into. First things first, let's talk about pepper. A lot of people like to use white pepper in their bechamel so they don't get the little black specks that you get with black pepper. I happen to hate white pepper, though I'm, I'm warming to it. I find it smells and tastes like a horse barn. I also don't like the black, or I don't mind the black specks in my white sauce. I'll leave it up to you whether you want to use white or black pepper. Now, it's very easy for the roux to stick to the bottom of the pan and burn as the bechamel is simmering. There are a few ways to help prevent this. Number one is to use a heavy bottom pot. Don't use a really thin pot, it's just going to burn. Number two is to stir the sauce regularly, make sure to scrape the bottom of the pot. If you do scrape the pot, bottom of the pot, Nose brown or black bits floating in your bechamel, strain it right away and put it in a new pot. Taste it before you continue cooking because it may already taste burnt. In that case, you have to start over. The third and probably safest option is to make the roux separately and add it after the milk has already been heated. In this case, you would simply cook the butter and flour together in a separate pot. The milk would be added to the softened onions and heated. And at this point, the roux would be whisked in. You still have to be vigilant in making sure the roux doesn't stick to the bottom of the pot, but this is way safer. Uh, 
if that is your concern. Bechamel based pasta sauce. We have now we now have a pretty good idea about how to make bechamel, but it's on its own it doesn't make much of a pasta sauce. So how do we turn a basic bechamel into a full-blown pasta sauce? The easiest way to do this is to have the bechamel ready to go and set aside. Start a new pan and saute some onions and garlic. Deglaze the pan with white wine, let it reduce down to just about nothing, then add in some bechamel. Add some parmesan to the sauce to finish it, and you are good to go. This can be served with chicken or seafood. Alternatively to that sauce, I just described a few uh, alternative to that sauce I just described. You can add a few spoonfuls of pesto um, and make a creamy pesto sauce, which is also delicious on chicken or seafood. Cream. Another way to make a creamy pasta is just to use heavy cream or whipping cream. I'll be the first to tell you this, that this makes a delicious sauce. However, using too much cream can lead to a very heavy and rich sauce that will leave you feeling gross. Not to mention, it's very fattening. If you do prefer to use cream, it is definitely easier than making a bechamel. Use only a little bit. For example, if the sauce... In the sauce with the white wine that I described above, rather than fully reducing the white wine, only reduce it by half, then add only a few tablespoons of cream. Or for the cream pesto sauce, use a quarter to a half cup of cream and a tablespoon or two of pesto. And there's a recipe here for the creamy chicken pesto pasta as well. Olive oil-based pasta sauces include sauces like pesto, agli olio, and garlic and oil pasta. Let's take a look at the pesto first. Pesto is one of those sauces that people often buy at the grocery store because they don't know how easy it is to make. The ingredients are fresh basil, parmesan, pine nuts, olive oil, and salt. That's it. Take all of the ingredients, put them in a blender, and you have pesto. Honestly, that's it. If you want to store the pesto for a week or two in the fridge, blanch the basil by dropping it in boiling water for you know, a couple of seconds and then into ice water to cool it. Dry the basil off as best you can with paper towels before adding it to the other ingredients. This blanching will help the basil retain its green color and will prevent your pasta from going black as it sits. If you have one big bunch of basil, use two cloves of garlic, um, a quarter to a half cup of good olive oil, two to three tablespoons of Parmesan, one to two tablespoons of pine nuts, and a good pinch of salt. Puree this, add more oil if needed, and it's good to go. Now, I know the pine nuts freak people out because they are really, really expensive. Luckily, you can buy them from the bulk section, so only get the amount you need. If all you need is two tablespoons, only buy that much, it'll just be like a dollar or two. Pesto is great by itself with pasta. Add it to either tomato or cream sauce, or use it in a million other ways that have nothing to do with pasta at all. Definitely get used to making your own pesto. It will be worth it. And sometimes I actually leave the cheese out of this recipe because I find if I'm making just a pesto pasta, the cheese will stick to the bottom of the pan. But if I'm going to use the pesto in other things, it's fine to put the cheese in. But again, I'll leave that up to you. Aglio-olio. Um, this sauce is made of three main ingredients, olive oil, garlic, and chili flakes. Parmesan, salt, pepper, fresh parsley, and lemon juice are often added as well. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Chef, you definitely should if you haven't, the one with Jon Favreau. He makes this sauce for, or this pasta for Scarlett Johansson. To make this sauce, heat a generous amount of olive oil, about a quarter cup, over medium heat. Slice two cloves of garlic as thin as you can and add that to the oil. Cook until the garlic softens. You may need to turn the heat down if the garlic starts to color. After four to five minutes, add half a teaspoon of dried chili flakes. Toss cooked spaghetti into the sauce and season the salt and pepper as needed. Alternatively, finish with Parmesan parsley and lemon juice. This is one of those unassuming sauces. You get very big flavors out of very few ingredients. It's classic Italian. And if you learn to make it, you might just get to make it for Scarlett Johansson. You're not going to get to make it for Scarlett Johansson. 
of sauce that I want to mention that confuses a lot of people is carbonara. A lot of people think of this as a cream-based sauce, but that's wrong. The sauce is made of eggs, cheese, and maybe a little pasta water. The other ingredients are generally a type of bacon along with salt, pepper, and parsley. That's it. No cream ever. To make it, put two eggs into a bowl and add two to three tablespoons of grated Parmesan and a quarter teaspoon of black pepper. Whisk the egg and cheese mixture together. Add hot, crispy bacon and hot linguine and stir until the pasta is completely coated and sauce thickens. If you need to, add a little bit of water from the pasta pot. Finish with chopped parsley and a bit more Parmesan. It may seem like you're going to be eating raw egg, but the heat from the bacon and the pasta and the water cooks the eggs. As the heat cooks the eggs, it melts the cheese, creating a classic creamy carbonara sauce. This is a dish that only takes as long to cook as it takes to make some bacon and cook some pasta. It's one of those dishes that confuses people with its simplicity. People try to overcomplicate it and make it much more difficult than it is. It is perfect just the way it is. Don't believe me? Try it for yourself. The right pasta for the job. Believe it or not, pasta shapes are not arbitrary. Different shapes have different jobs. Typically speaking, the thinner the pasta, the lighter the sauce. Long, thick noodles like fettuccine are great for thick, creamy sauces because there's so much surface area on the pasta and the sauce to stick to. On the other hand, excuse me, meat sauce generally goes really well with spaghetti because it's a thinner pasta that can be twirled with forks to pick up lots of bits of meat and sauce. Hollow pasta like penne is great for creamy kind of chunky sauces that will fill the voids in the pasta. And this way, when you bite into the pasta, it's filled with sauce. Obviously, use whatever type of pasta you'd like for whatever types of sauce you'd like. This should just give you a basic idea of, of what to use with what. Um, and if you don't know, now you do. And that does it for part two of basic things that everyone should be able to cook. Today we looked at fish and pasta. Um, we'll be back on Wednesday with another episode in this series. And I think it's the last episode other than the kind of wrap up, uh, which will be on Friday. Hope you enjoyed this post. If you did, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Chef Ben Kelly. You can share the podcast with all your friends. Talk about it. Tell people. Share the ideas. You know, that's what this is all about. Uh, and yeah, I'm Chef Ben. This is Food and Five. Thank you so much. And again, I'll share a link to this post in the description of the video. So if you want to see those recipes or you want to just read the post, you can find it all there. Have a great day, everybody. I will talk to you soon. And thank you, as always, for listening.